true Christianity is not just a profession. True Christianity involves a life to be lived. True Christianity shows up in the life. So when people tell you that they're Christians, but you don't see any evidence of it in their outward behavior, you have every right to be skeptical. Skeptical of their profession. And there are many in the world who will point to those, many of those professing the Lord's name, and they will say, if that's a Christian, I want no part of being a Christian. Which is a very sad thing indeed. Here in this chapter 3, it talks about holiness in the Christian heart. It also speaks of harmony in the Christian church. And it goes on to refer to honour in the Christian home. And then, as we're now going to discover, it speaks of honesty in the Christian's workplace. Now, I want you to notice the balance of the teaching of the Apostle Paul when he's dealing with various relationships. He doesn't just talk to wives in the home, he talks to husbands. He doesn't just speak to the children, but he speaks to the parents. And then he not only speaks to servants, but he speaks to the masters. Remembering, of course, that there's no chapter divisions in the original scripture. So Colossians chapter 4 verse 1 is a follow-on from chapter 3. So there in chapter 3 verse 22, he begins, Servants. We would use the word bond slaves. And in chapter 4, verse 1, masters. There's a balance in the teaching when dealing with these relationships. And the Christianity of the Scriptures, I again would emphasize, is not just a creed to profess, but it is a life to live. Our eyes are to be fixed on heaven. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 make that very clear. <clears throat> we're not in heaven yet. If we're saved, we're on our way to heaven. But we're not there yet. However, the Bible says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. That's heavenly mindedness. So our minds are to be in heaven. Our focus is to be toward heaven ultimately. But we're not there yet. We have to live here on this earth until such times as the Lord will take us to heaven. And so we are to live in a proper fashion right here on the earth. As well as chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, we notice in chapter 4, that it continues with this particular thing. See where God is, chapter 4, verse 1, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. We're to be heavenly minded while we're living on the earth. Now the Lord has not yet received us into glory, but we are to live for him until such times as he does. And the way in which we are to live 
is under the guidance and direction of the Word of God. The Bible is to be our roadmap for living. It is to guide us in our personal lives, in our domestic lives, in our church lives, and in our business or work lives. Personally, domestically, in the church of Jesus Christ, you could say ecclesiastically, and secularly, though for the Christian there is no such thing as being entirely secular. Everything is sacred to the believer. But for sake of argument, we could use his secular life. The life that he lives in this world. The work-a-day world. Now, the apostle has given directions, as we have seen, for the ideal home. He's given us that ideal home exhibition. But now we will notice that there are directions that are very applicable for the ideal workplace. Look at chapter 3 from verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Before we say anything else, let's just establish this, that the Bible commands hard work. It is a falsehood for people to claim that work only began after the fall. People say, well, that's when the Lord said, in the sweat of your face, you will earn your bread. So obviously work didn't commence till after the fall. This is not true. Because Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 records, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Adam was a gardener, a horticulturalist, if you like, a farmer, before he ever fell into sin. But the Bible commends and commands hard work, not slothfulness. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4, for example, the Scripture says this, Proverbs 10, verse 4, He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. The Lord is commending work. And this is something that Paul continues to deal with in the New Testament. Particularly in 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 4, from verse 11, the Apostle writes the following. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 11. And that you study to be quiet and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. Work. It's commended by God. Now, it has been suggested by some commentators that the teaching of Paul here regarding slaves and masters, because those are the words that are used. Let's not shy away from this. This is what the word servant means. It means a bond slave. The word master means what it means. Those who possessed slaves. Paul was teaching here about 
slaves and masters, and some commentators will suggest that that might have had some connection with the particular circumstances in Colossae. Especially with regard to a man called Philemon, who had a servant called Onesimus. Now just look at chapter 4 of Colossians and verse number 9. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. So there's this character, Onesimus. Paul's not describing him here as a slave. He's describing him as a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. He's a member of the congregation there at Colossae. But if you go back to the epistle to Philemon, in fact in your Bible you'll have to go forward. It's right after Second Timothy and Titus, just before Hebrews, but you knew that already. Philemon, verse 1, I'll not say chapter 1 because there is only one chapter. Philemon, verse 1 and verse 10, we read the following. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. Now go down to verse 10. I beseech thee for my son, Onesimus, there he is again, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Now, Paul refers in this chapter to the status of Onesimus when he worked for Philemon. Verse 16, he's telling him that he wants him to receive him now, not now as a servant, and it's the same word, bond slave. Not now as a bond slave. But above a bond slave, a brother beloved, especially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If thou count me, therefore, a partner, receive him as myself. One of those who delivered the epistle to the Colossians was Onesimus. He was a runaway slave. His master was Philemon. And now Onesimus has been reconciled to Philemon, his master. So I think when Paul is writing to the Colossians about this subject, it's obviously got quite a bit of resonance in that congregation because one of them, a prominent man there, is called Philemon and the servant was Onesimus. It's interesting how Paul speaks to Philemon, however, about Onesimus. He'd run away. Now when he's coming back to Philemon, presumably to live in his house again, Paul's telling Philemon, I want you to receive him as a brother. As an equal. Doesn't one of our Christmas carols say, the slave is our brother? Paul is recognizing that the gospel does something. And we'll come back to that. But this epistle, I want to point out as well, was written against the background of extensive slavery in the Roman Empire. Now you think to hear the left today, politically, that the only nation that ever had slavery was the United States. You would think to hear them that the only people who were ever enslaved 
were people who were brought from Africa. And that the only people who were involved in the slave trade were white men. None of that is true. The fact of the matter is that slavery has been in existence from time immemorial. And some of those who were the first slaves were of a lighter skin. And in fact there's proof, plenty of it in Africa, that there were many who were of a white, lighter skin who were captives of those who were of darker skin. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, was once incarcerated and became a slave of a black woman in Africa. So don't buy into the narrative of the left about this matter. And I could get into a whole lot of other things tonight, which I don't want to get into. But people talk about this country as if this is a terrible, evil country with such an awful background to be repudiated. Don't listen to that nonsense. Because that's what it is. It's nonsense. This epistle was written against the background of extensive slavery in the Roman Empire. The Romans, when they used to take places captive, they would take those that they conquered as slaves. They possessed at this particular time in the Roman Empire probably somewhere north of 60 million slaves. Think about that. 60 million people. That was over one half of the population of the Roman Empire. We should understand as well that slaves were considered subhuman. A slave wasn't really a person. A slave was a tool or a commodity. And therefore the master-slave relationship was not usually a happy one. And thus there was often much friction and a lot of cause for grievance. It was in that cultural setting that a church was established. In that church were both slaves and their masters who had been converted. That was part of the economy at the time. That's how it operated. So you had people in the congregations who were enslaved, they were servants, and you had others who were masters. And therefore the potential for great tension in the church existed, obviously. It was a sensitive problem to deal with. And the Apostle Paul, you will see, brought some really revolutionary teaching into that situation. This is something they'd never heard. Look at Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. See that? When you come to Christ, <clears throat> you're not a slave Christian or a master Christian. You're a Christian. There's neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now he's not talking about ethnicity. Because people who were Jews and were converted were still Jews. Greeks who were converted were still Greeks. They didn't change their nationality. Men who were saved retained their male status. Women who were saved continued to be women. 
When he says they're neither male nor female, he's not talking about some sort of a hybrid person when you get saved. No. He's talking about their spiritual standing. That's what he means. Because you're all one in Christ Jesus. The ground is dead level at Calvary. There are no masters and slaves. There are no superiors and inferiors. We're all on the same level. We're equally redeemed by the blood of Christ. This was revolutionary teaching for many people. And there are some who will say, well now, why did Paul not set out to fight slavery? Why did he not issue a whole polemic against the slave trade here? Well, obviously he didn't do that. But you'll notice as well that he didn't sanction it either. And that's really important. Paul did not sanction slavery. I've already given the example of Onesimus and Philemon. What his advice was to Philemon in relation to Onesimus. He was to treat him now as a brother. But Paul was not William Wilberforce of Great Britain before his time. He wasn't in the social reform movement. But what Paul set out to do was to change lives and attitudes through the preaching of the gospel. And it is a fact of history, whatever anyone might say, that such gospel preaching resulted in the overthrow of the Roman Empire with its system of slavery. Just as the gospel preaching of revival preachers in later centuries resulted in the abolition of slavery and child labour. In the old days, little kids of nine and ten used to be sent up chimneys to sweep them. Because they were so small, but it was a dangerous task, it was very bad for them. It was called child labour. It became outlawed. Slavery was outlawed, first of all in Great Britain, and then it made its way over to America. And there were a lot of complications in regard to that. People think it's just a simple thing. Oh, they should have just, you know, on day one, just cancelled all the slavery and everything would have been well. But it wasn't just as simple as that. You're dealing with the entire economy of a country that operated in a certain way with a system that was socially acceptable at the time. We're now looking at things like that with the benefit of hindsight. We didn't live then. But it is a fact, let me tell you, the gospel did away with human trafficking and slavery. So Paul dealt with the situation as he found it. That's what we must understand. And his teaching was definitely something that was novel and new to the people of the Roman Empire. Now, while this teaching was given against the background of an ancient world culture, let me tell you its message is still valid and it's still vital for our situation today. In this respect, if you replace the word servant with employee and the word master with employer, you have a recipe for good relations in the workplace. A place of work should certainly be a place of harmony between Christians. If you had a Christian employer and you were a Christian employee, there ought to be a proper relationship between them. Now you might say that's a rare combination in the day in which we live. Perhaps it is. 
But I've actually been in the happy position of working for a Christian man in the past. And it's so vitally important that Christians get along. Even though they're in different spheres. One is in a position of authority. One is more subservient in terms of the business. Paul deals with a number of things here. The first one I want us to think about tonight is what I would call the dedication of a Christian employee. We're taking the word servant, as it's used here in Colossians 3 verse 22, to refer to someone who is employed, a worker. The Christian ought to be in his place of work, the best worker in the place. That's what we should strive to be. Someone with a testimony that we work hard. I don't care whether it's in an office, on the shop floor, behind a counter, whether it's in a warehouse or a factory or wherever it may be. A Christian employee should have a good testimony as an honest and hard working employee. Some years ago in my home church, there was a fellow, his name was Gerald, and he was quite obviously special needs. He'd gone to a special school. It was obvious if you met Gerald that he had limitations. But he had a job, as people like that often do and should have. He was employed by the Belfast City Council, the municipality, as a road sweeper. And you would see Gerald out there on the street with his little cart, with his brushes and his mops and all manner of stuff. And he used to have a bunch of tracks with him. And everywhere he went, he would speak to people about the Lord. But the testimony that was given of Gerald to people that knew him in his church was that the street that he swept was the cleanest in the whole of the area. He was so fastidious. He was so careful to clean everything up. He wouldn't have had a piece of paper or anything laying around. He had it lifted before you could say anything because that's what he felt was his duty to do. As a Christian to have a testimony. And I believe God blesses that. And did bless him. It would have moved you to tears. To hear Gerald pray in the prayer meeting. And sometimes he would quote that hymn. Instead of quoting the whole chorus. He would just say. Oh precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. Oh precious is the flow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He would, he would quote it not quite accurately. But he loved that chorus and loved that hymn. Listen, the Christian is to be a dedicated employee. Conscientious. I don't know if you've ever heard the term a shirker. But a shirker is the opposite of a worker. A shirker is somebody who doesn't want to work. Who tries to get out of work. And isn't it interesting here that Paul, when he's writing, he talks about servants serving, verse 22, not with eye service as men pleasers, 
Not with eye service. In other words, not just doing it when the boss is watching you. Before I went into the ministry, I worked several jobs in what you would call the work-a-day world. Several different kinds of jobs. I remember I worked in a large warehouse one time where they used to sell fancy goods and carpets and all manner of wonderful things. I used to go around with my little cart and an order sheet and get them all off the shelves and bring them back to the, to the dispatch and they would take care of it from there. I worked various other jobs. I once worked as a junior salesman selling clothing. And I learned what goes together and what doesn't go together. You don't wear a checky shirt with stripy pants. You don't wear a stripy shirt with checky pants. You just That's a no-no. Different colors don't work and all that stuff. I had to learn all that. But I remember when I worked in some of those places, there were characters who used to say, where's the boss? Where's the boss? Is the boss in today? Or speaking about the foreman, is, is mentioning his name, is he in today or, or where is he? You know why? Because if he wasn't in, they could go and lay down somewhere at the back of the factory. Or just not work very hard. But boy, if there there was word that the foreman was on the floor, they were as busy as they could be. Some of them would walk about with a piece of paper. You know, if you walk around with a piece of paper, no one ever asks you anything. You're busy. This is what they used to do. Some people needed the foreman to stand over them or else the work would never get done. You know, I heard a story about a factory that had a suggestion box for the employees to improve the working conditions. You know, it was one of the suggestions. We want the foreman to no longer wear rubber heels on his shoes. Why? Because they wanted to hear him coming. So they could know that he was there. They they wanted to be able to hear him approaching. Now, that's just a funny story, but that's the attitude of some people. They need to be watched. You have to stand over them or the work will never get done. Listen, God is always watching. The Lord is always watching. It tells us this in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 139. You know, the Word of God has something to say about everything, including hard work. And Psalm 139, verses 2 and 3, says this. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. There's another verse that says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. So when we're working, we have to work with a single eye to the glory of God. The, The term that Paul uses here is fearing God. In other words, doing your work as part of your worship of the Lord. That's right. Doing your work as worship unto the Lord. Notice this in verse 23 of Colossians 3. And whatsoever you do, he's talking in the context of work here now. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Or as it is in verse 17, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. The ungodly person who doesn't really curse says, Ah, that'll do. That'll be fine. That'll do. No big deal. 
The Christian man is not satisfied with shoddy work. He's conscientious. He does what he does as unto the Lord. There was a servant maid who once worked in a big house. And she was asked the question how she knew that she was now really a Christian. She said, because now I sweep under the, under the mats. Now I sweep under the mats. Different attitude now, you see. Because I'm now doing it as unto the Lord. Conscientious, but also consecrated. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. As to the Lord, he says. As to the Lord. Verse 23 of, verse, of chapter 3. And also, ye serve the Lord Christ. That's verse 24. See that? You're not just serving your employer. employer. You're not just serving the one who's your master. You're doing this as unto the Lord. And the same teaching is found in Ephesians chapter 6. If you read from verses 5 through 7. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not with thy service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. As to the Lord and not to men. That's consecrated work. There was a young assistant who was left to mind the shop by his employer one day. And there was a traveller who came into that place of business and he asked that young assistant to do a shady transaction. Something that was underhanded. And he said to the young man, look, it's all right, your master's not in. And the young kid who was a believer in Christ pointed heavenward and he said, my master's always in. My master is always in. What a good answer that was. Do we do our work as consecrated service to the Lord? A man by the name of Samuel Chadwick used to say that when he wrote his letters, he wrote his letters as if he was writing to God. And so he was careful to have no blots or no mistakes in the letter. You might think, well, that's a bit, that's a bit much. That's taking it a bit far, isn't it? Well, Verse 23 says, whatsoever you do, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. One time in my first church, we were giving out some leaflets for special meetings that were being held. I remember watching one brother and just fold in any old way. They were all just folded, just terrible. I remember saying to the brother, look, I think probably be better to fold them. That's my... OCD thing. You've got to fold them correctly, you know, so that they, they match. He said, oh, it doesn't really matter. I said, it does matter. If I got that through my door, got that through my door, I'm more likely to pay attention to this than to that. Don't do shoddy work. You know, your master is not just your foreman at work or your boss at work. He's your master. He's the one who is in heaven. That's what it says in chapter 4, verse 1. 
You have a master in heaven. I've told you before, my grandfather had an old gramophone. And he used to have these old records. You know the ones, you'll show your age if you say yes. An old dog, or a dog, with a gramophone. The dog's leaning over this gramophone. And it used to say on it, his master's voice. His master's voice. What about our master? What about his voice? What he says to us in his word. Back in the UK, I remember letters used to have printed on official government envelopes, OHMS. You know what that stood for? On Her Majesty's Service. Or, when there's a change of gender, on His Majesty's Service. The Queen's Council, who are lawyers, become King's Council when the King comes to the throne. But that's what used to be on the envelopes. OHMS. On Her Majesty's Service. But that should describe the Christian at work. OHMS. On His Master's Service. We're here on business for our King. That includes our what we might call secular work. See, everything to the Christian is to be sacred, not secular. Uh, some people are very good at dividing up their lives into the secular and the sacred. But everything's sacred to the Christian. Everything. We're to do it as unto the Lord. Conscientious, consecrated, and also committed. This is part of our duty as believers. Totally committed to our work. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great example He is in everything. Do you know the Bible says that He set His face as a flint to go to Jerusalem? He was determined to go through with His great task. And I can imagine our Savior when He was a small boy in the home of Joseph and Mary... I know the Bible doesn't speak about this. The Bible doesn't talk much about the silent years between when he was born and when he was 12 years old going up to the Passover. But I I certainly think we can conjecture his father was a carpenter. That is his earthly guardian. It wasn't his real father. We know that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. His father is in heaven. is born of the Holy Ghost. But Joseph was his earthly guardian. And he was subject to Joseph and Mary. And I can imagine... Joseph working in that carpenter shop and asking the boy Jesus to do certain errands and to do certain things. You would never have seen the boy Jesus say, no, I'm not doing that. No, do it yourself. Perish the thought that the Holy Savior would have done such a thing. He would have done what he did with all of his heart and soul and mind. And what an impression that would have made upon Joseph and Mary this This child is different. This child is perfect. I know that a lot of parents think that about their children. The butter wouldn't melt in their mouth. But we know the reality is different. But that was true. That was infinitely true of the Lord Jesus. Perfect. He had no sin. He did no sin. He knew no sin. That would have been evident even in his work as a child. Helping in Joseph's workshop. Committed. Are we totally committed to our work? No matter what kind of earthly employer that we have. Are we committed? 
Right here in verses 23 and 24, it says that servants are to obey in all things their masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. There's, there's a commitment there. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily. That means with all your heart, with all your soul. Dr. Pacey used to give the illustration when he was a boy, he and his brother Harold had chores to do at home. And one of the chores that he had to do was to clean this brass thing that was on his mother's fireplace. Now, I know that you call a fender part of the car, but there are things over there that we call fenders that are different. There's a shovel, there's a brush, there's a poker, there's various other things on this. It's called a brass fender. And Dr. Paisley's job when he was a boy was to get this stuff called brasso. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Put it on a cloth and he would clean that brass thing. And he said he used to hate that job. He despised having to do this. Until one day he realized, I have to do it anyway because my mother going to make me do it. Whether I want to do it, whether I like doing it, I'm going to have to do it. So he said, I took a decision. I'm going to make that thing as shiny as it's ever been in its entire existence. I'm going to make that thing that I can see my face in every part of it. I'm going to shine that thing till it's just absolutely gleaming. And he said, you know, when he said about the job doing that, it made such a difference. Because now it was something, it wasn't a chore, now it was a challenge. Now it was something that he really wanted to do. And he said, whenever it was finished, the handiwork was such that he thought, wow, what a job that is. I remember him applying that to the Christian's life and work. We are to do what we do as our best for Jesus. If we're at school, we do the best school work we can. We don't have the attitude that I remember one guy having when I went to college. He said, ah, as long as I get a pass mark, I'll be happy. I remember thinking, I wonder what the Lord thinks of that. But I know what the Lord thinks of that. That's not good enough. I wonder, have I done my best for Jesus? Because he's did his best for me. About 200 years ago, the editors of a very famous newspaper in Great Britain, known as the Times, it's still uh, a best-selling paper. The editors of the Times were embarrassed by the number of errors in the newspaper that people were finding every day. It seemed like every copy, every day, had typographical errors. And so one day the editors got their compositors and their printing staff together and they said, from now on, the first copy of the paper off the press in the morning is going to be sent to the king. He'll be the first one to read it. You know, immediately there was a vast improvement. It's a true story. You see, the thought of their king examining their workmanship really made them buck up their ideas. The king is going to see this. We better get it right. It's not hard to make the application, is it? It's not hard to see what the lesson is in that, spiritually. 
You see verse 24 of Colossians 3, Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. I wonder if you ever thought about that when you're doing your work. The work that I do is examined not just by my employer, it's seen by God. It's recognized by Him. And the work that I do will be acknowledged by the Lord. It's going to be rewarded by Him. tells you that right here. You know, this is practical Christianity. He's not talking about going out and preaching. He's not talking about giving out tracts. He's not talking about what we call spiritual work. He's talking about being a servant. And he says, when you do what you do heartily is to the Lord and not unto men, of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Doing everything as unto the Lord. Of course, the converse is also true. Because the next verse says, but, but, he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. The Lord will not be pleased with dishonesty and shoddy work. He sees it all. I've known of people who thought it would be a good thing to take off a few minutes off work and go read their Bible. Well, the Lord didn't tell your employer to pay you money to read your Bible. Well, that's okay on a break time or at a time when you're allowed to do so with your employer's permission. But if you do that on your employer's time, that's stealing. That is, that's stealing. Well, when I'm reading my Bible, you may be reading your Bible, but you're not paid to read your Bible, you're paid to work. As an employee, you're paid to do a good job to the best of your ability. And there's a man in the Old Testament who's a wonderful example of this, and his name is Joseph. Now, Joseph literally, this applies to, because what was Joseph doing in Egypt? He was a slave. He was a servant. A servant in the house of Potiphar. And my Bible tells me in Genesis chapter 39, verse 1, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. So he's bought as a slave. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. So here it is, the servant and the, and the master relationship. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. He trusted Joseph with everything in his house. He was such a dependable young worker that Potiphar wasn't afraid to go away and leave everything in Joseph's hands. That's the kind of servant he was. There are people, and I'm thinking of ungodly men in particular, who think, well, you know, I can do a shoddy job or I can sort of skive off work for a while, not do my job, because my employer doesn't pay me enough wages. My employer doesn't treat me right. So why should I work hard for him? Well, that's not right. 
There are some employees who feel that that gives them the right to steal from the firm or from their boss as well. Well, they don't pay me very well, so I'll just pocket some of the things. Those that are right with God are not going to have that attitude. In fact, when people get saved, truly saved, it makes them into honest men. There was a preacher in Ulster called W.P. Nicholson, William Patterson Nicholson, great revival preacher. He preached in an area of the city where I used to live in. There's a big Presbyterian church there. And the front pillars of that church were moved as a result of the crowds of men from the shipyards coming to hear him preach. Came in their thousands. Couldn't even get into the church. They were all over the place, outside and in. And there was a tremendous revival that broke out through the preaching of Nicholson, insomuch that people by the scores were getting saved. A lot of them that visited, that came to the meetings, were shipyard workers. They worked in Harland and Wolfe, the big employer that used to employ 20,000 men in those days. Do you know that Harland and Wolfe shipbuilders had to construct an aircraft hangar, and if you've ever seen one of those, they're massive. They had to construct an aircraft hangar for all of the goods that were, were being brought back that had been stolen by shipyard workers. Because they had gotten saved and they realized this stuff doesn't belong to me, it belongs to the shipyard. They built an airport hangar to put all this stuff in. That's a true story. That's revival. That's revival. When people's hearts are moved in such a way. They've been stealing from the firm. They've been stealing from the boss. God did a work in their hearts. They've become honest men. This is how we are to behave as Christians. With unscrupulous honesty. If you work in an office... Unless you have permission, you don't take home a pencil, you don't take home an eraser, you don't take home a bottle of ink or white out, you don't take home one of those pins that you hold the papers together with. You don't do it. Why? Because you're serving the Lord Christ. This is the attitude that we are to have as we work for the Lord. All things for Jesus. Ephesians 4 verse 28 says this. Let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor. Working with his hands the thing which is good. That he may have to give to him that needeth. We're also told by the servant of God. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And the first two verses, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. Let the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and 
command or, uh, and exhort. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil, surmisings. And it goes on to say at the end of all that, but godliness with contentment is great gain. The gospel, you see, affects every part of the Christian's life. And we have a duty as believers, if we work a job, if we are employed by someone, we have a duty to be dedicated as a Christian employee to the work that we have to do. Because we are doing it. We are to do it as unto the Lord. It's not just preachers. It's not just missionaries. It's not just full-time Christian workers that we might call them who are serving the Lord. You may be standing over a sink full of dishes. And when you do that work, you're to do it as unto the Lord. Seeking to please Him in everything that you do. May the Lord help us for His name's sake. Amen.